Well, good morning to each one, and I greet you in the name of Jesus. The Lord has given us a beautiful day to worship Him. I thought the, uh, the first section of our Sunday school lesson, talking about the spring, I thought the, the lesson timing with today's date was just about perfect. Some time ago, I was asked if I would share a message on non-resistance. At this time, several of our high school students are studying non-resistance versus pacifism. And so, Ms. Crystal asked if I would address two aspects of non-resistance. First, contrasting biblical non-resistance with pacifism and then second, how we can contribute to peace among men. Now, unfortunately, I believe only one of the class is here today, am I correct? <laughs> so uh, that's how it worked out, but thankfully uh, I have notes and it's being recorded and so maybe they'll get in on it in a, another time in another way. But today, for the most part, I will assume that you know and believe the Bible doctrine of non-resistance and trust, too, that you are fully persuaded in this doctrine. In the first part of this message, I will be sharing a few thoughts on non-resistance and then looking at pacifism and then contrast the two beliefs. And so let's begin. Maybe this is more like class today than a sermon. I do have this dream of one day being able to do some teaching in school. I don't want the responsibility of a classroom, but I would enjoy teaching Bible, and I would enjoy teaching history. But that's out a few years yet. But maybe today will be like class. So let's begin. The essential doctrine of non-resistance is taught by Jesus himself. Jesus said, I tell you not to resist an evil person. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. From his words, we see that non-resistance is very personal. It has to do with you. It has to do with me. I tell you not to resist an evil person. Love your enemies. It's very personal. Non-resistance is about the Christian's response to others who wrong him. It's about living in peace. Non-resistance is not about social issues. It's not about a Christian's response to people who wrong others. It assumes that the Christian stands apart from general society, even though he is in it. Non-resistance is not a method for social reform, but a personal response to evil. Non-resistance is for the born-again Christian, not the unregenerated man. It is for those who are willing to let loose of everything in this world and to suffer for his sake. It holds no assurance of safety for life 
and possessions. The non-resistant Christian simply trusts God, not human agencies for his care and protection. Non-resistance is for the church, not for the state. It is not designed to meet the needs of society and civil government. It is for the society of the redeemed. We believe and teach separation of church and state. We believe in the two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. According to Romans 13, verse 1, the authorities that exist in this world are appointed by God. And so God has ordained that civil authorities, governor, general society, they make laws, they enforce laws, they punish the evildoer, and see that justice is carried out. God has not ordained that non-resistant Christians function in this capacity. And so, in a nutshell, write this down, non-resistance is personal, peaceable, and non-political. Y'all got that? Okay. Let's think a few minutes about pacifism. What is pacifism? I would be interested to know how many of you could just tell us what pacifism is like? Stand up and tell us what it's all about. I mean, you could probably tell us sort of what it's about, right? I mean, you, you know some about it. That's kind of where I found myself before I went into this study. I knew about pacifism. I knew in part kind of what they believed, what they taught, what they promoted. But what is pacifism? And I'll share some of what I found in my research, and I'm not going to exhaust this by any means. But pacifism is the belief that any violence, including war, is unjustifiable under any circumstances, and that all disputes should be settled by peaceful means. A pacifist generally rejects war and believes there are no moral grounds which can justify resorting to war. War for the pacifists is always wrong. Pacifists holds that the cost of war and interpersonal violence are so substantial that better ways of revolving disputes must be found. Pacifists generally reject theories of just war. That sounds very similar to non-resistance, does it not? But just wait. Some pacifists follow principles of nonviolence, believing that nonviolent action is morally superior and or most effective. Some, however, support physical violence for emergency defense of self or others. Some pacifists support destruction of property in such emergencies or for conducting symbolic acts of resistance. An example would be pouring red paint to represent blood on the outside of a military recruiting offices or entering Air Force bases and hammering on military aircraft. 
And here is what they say. And listen closely. I'm going to read this sentence twice. Not all nonviolent resistance is based on a fundamental rejection of all violence in all circumstances. Okay, that's a little hard to get. You have to think that through. But not all nonviolent resistance is based on a fundamental rejection of all violence in all circumstances. And so what they're saying is sometimes you may need some violence. Many leaders and participants in such movements, while recognizing the importance of using nonviolent methods in particular circumstances, have not been absolute pacifists. Sometimes, as with the civil rights movements, march from Selma to Montgomery in 1965, they have called for armed protection. The interconnection between civil resistance and factors of force are numerous and complex, says the pacifist. This is coming from their information. Although all pacifists are opposed to war between nation states, there have been occasions where pacifists have supported military conflict in the case of the Civil War or Revolution. For instance, during the Civil War, the American Civil War, both the American Peace Society and some former members of the non-resistant society supported the Union's military campaign, arguing they were carrying out a police action against the Confederacy whose act of succession they regarded as criminal. And so that's some of the information I found on what pacifism is, what they believe. And so here's some thoughts on pacifism. While pacifism may be somewhat influenced by Jesus' teaching, it is not the biblical doctrine of non-resistance. In fact, it is not non-resistance at all. It is resistance to what are considered evil men and evils in society, and it aggressively opposes them in, nonviolent, in, a, in a nonviolent way. Pacifists not only resist, but they apply pressure, moral, psychological, social, and political pressure to achieve their desired goals. They stop short of violence, although their nonviolent actions sometimes induce violent reactions in others. There is a part of pacifism that on the surface resembles biblical non-resistance, the spirit of love and self-sacrifice at first glance gives pacifism the appearance of spiritual correctness. However, as you study pacifism, you will see it is more like violent resistance than biblical non-resistance. In the end, the objective of pacifism and of violent warfare is identical. The basic philosophy underlying both is that of achieving desired goals through use of force. You see, there is a fine line between nonviolent and violent resistance. 
The basic differences is in method, not in philosophy. The heart emotion of the nonviolent and the violent resistance is the same. The pacifist may use his body to block traffic. The military will use a gun or a bomb. But the hard emotion of the two is the same. One of Martin Luther King Jr.'s major challenges with the nonviolent resistant movement was to keep it nonviolent. And toward the end of his life, many of his followers who became impatient in the struggle caved in to violence. And so pacifists, as strange as it may sound, are not at peace in their social surroundings, but in conflict. Pacifism is not peaceable. It often falls short of James chapter 3, 17 and 18. And I'll read those verses. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Pacifists are not Bible peacemakers. The peace, they may, the peace they make can be achieved only after they have forced others into accepting their goals. Pacifism is simply not a Christian philosophy. And so a pacifism may or may not be a professing Christian. Martin Luther King Jr. summed up his study of pacifism with these words. True pacifism is not, resistant, is not resistance to evil, but nonviolent resistance to evil. He goes on to say, I tried to arrive at a realistic pacifism. In other words, I came to see the pacifist position not as sinless, but as the lesser evil in the circumstances. And I would agree with that conclusion. I believe that's a good conclusion. When it comes to war versus pacifism, I would say that pacifism is certainly the lesser of the two evils, but it's still not God's way. It still is not what Jesus taught, but it's true. It is the lesser of the two evils. So let's consider now the basic difference between non-resistance and pacifism. And I'm sure I'm going way too fast for you all to write all this down. But um, like I said, I'm going to share my notes. That is after Beverly goes through and edits them for me. But um, I will get them to you. But some of those differences we have already noticed. But I would believe the basic theological difference between Christian pacifism and biblical non-resistance has to do with the question of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus now Lord of the church only, or is he also Lord of the state? You see, on this question hinges all the rest. 
it comes down to this question. Is Jesus now Lord of the church only, or is he also Lord of the state? How one answers this question will affect his outlook on the Christian's relationship or the Christian's relation to the state, his responsibility to the state, his responsibility for the acts of the state, his attitude towards the payment of taxes, his view of capital punishment, his position on wars of the state, and his personal response to evil. You see, if Christ is not now Lord of the state, then the separation of the Christian from the state is clear, and the Christian has valid grounds for separating himself from the affairs of the state. On the other hand, if Christ is Lord of both the church and the state, then the Christian could logically be active in both. In fact, the Christian might be morally obligated to see that the state be a Christian state where there is no injustice, no oppression, and no bloodshed. So which way is it? What do you believe? What does the Bible say? Well, I'll share what I believe. I'll share with you what I have found. But I would encourage you to dig into this yourself and be convinced. Don't, don't just go home and, well, Dan said it this way. No, read what the Bible says and become convinced in your own heart. I would believe the state is under the sovereignty of God, but does not operate under the lordship of Christ. That's what I would believe. The church, however, is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. God has ordained civil government and rules in the affairs of men. However, God does not hold the same relationship to the state and to its ungodly citizens that he does to the church. That is what I would believe. Down through the ages, there is an unbroken, let me start over. Down through the ages, there is a unbroken line in Christ's relationship to the church through the Lord of the church, whose subjects are in loving submission to him. No such line exists in his relationship to the state. Its ungodly subjects are generally in a state of rebellion and alienation to God. They are actually under the dominion of Satan. And so, the state must therefore be governed by principles other than Christian principles. The institution of the church operates under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The other institute, the state, is under the dominion of Satan. And so, even though civil government is ordained of God, Jesus is Lord only to those who voluntary, voluntarily submit to his lordship. Those are the people who make up the church. These people belong to the Lord whose kingdom is not now of this world. The kingdoms of this world, on the other hand, are under the dominion of Satan. 
the God of this world. And you know, that sounds pretty harsh, does it not? But I recently, this past week, looked over a list of eighth grade science lesson titles from over here at our public school. And it's very obvious whose dominion the public schools are operating under. There is no question. I have several references we can turn to and write these down and I will read them. But I actually, let's turn to these because it's so important to understand this lordship question. But just a few references that bring that out. 1 John 5.19, let me give you the reference so you know where to turn. 1 John 5.19. We know that we are of God. That is our position. We are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Turn back to John 18, 36. The words of Jesus. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. But you know, one day that's going to change. The day is coming when Christ will rule. And turn over to Revelation chapter 11. Let me show you something there. I, I did, this was kind of new to me. This hasn't stood out to me before, but it blessed me as I was studying this. Revelation 11, and I will read 15 through 17. But notice, it, notice verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You see, in the past, it wasn't that way. But now, it says uh, they have become. And so the future, uh, in the future, Christ will rule the nation. And verse 16, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to the devil, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. 
this temptation of Jesus was the temptation to governor the world. And our Lord resisted it. And as his followers, so should we. And so a person's understanding of the Lordship of Jesus Christ will affect his view of the Christian's response to evil men and evil in societies, in society. The non-resistant Christian takes Christ at his word when he says, resist not evil. The pacifist, on the other hand, must somehow reinterpret that command or simply ignore it. For as it stands, it does not fit into his philosophy. The New Testament does not instruct Christians on how to influence or overcome the evils in society, but it does instruct Christians how to respond and relate to those evils. Pacifism's primary goal, however, is the correction of social ills. Pacifists attempt to transform society without the transformation of sinners to saints. Pacifism is a very optimistic philosophy working for world peace in this age. However, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 7 and 8, for nations will rise up against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. The pacifist hopes that somehow this will not be, and he strives to that end. And so, in a nutshell, write this down. Biblical non-resistance and pacifism are not harmonious, but conflicting positions. Y'all got that? Biblical non-resistance and pacifism are not harmonious, but conflicting positions. They are based on different premises. They are guided by different philosophies. They have different objectives and goals. They engage different methods and involve different groups of people. And so today we have before us non-resistance or pacifism, which is the right way. I would say non-resistance. Non-resistance is the doctrine taught and lived by Christ. The disciples gave us an example of it and we have many faithful followers in the past and even today who live out this doctrine. I have a little booklet here if you want to. I lean very heavily on this for my thoughts today. Uh, you can get this at Christian Light. Marie will bring one down for you, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, it's just a very well-written piece. And also another source would be um, David Berceau. Go on YouTube. He has many uh, different talks that he does, live talks on, um, on these types of things. And what he is famous for is he likes to go back and research what the early church believed and what they taught on these type of things. And where did pacifism begin? 
you know, and he, he really goes into those histories. And not only on this subject, but on eternal security and, and other issues that the church faces today. Highly recommend those. It will deepen your faith for sure. Okay, so let's think now for a few minutes. How can we contribute to peace among men? The doctrine of non-resistance is more than not being involved in the military. It's also about living in peace among ourselves as brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's about living in peace among the ungodly as well. The same principles that Jesus taught for loving our enemies, blessing them, praying for them, applies in church life, in school life, in home life, within our marriages, in our work, and in our businesses. The Bible gives us clear and practical direction when it comes to the subject of living at peace among men. I thought we would look briefly at a passage that shows us what living peaceably requires and also what it looks like when we live it out. And I invite you to Romans chapter 12. I'd like to read 9 through 19. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no man evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This passage clearly shows us that it is the will of God for the Christian to live in peace. And notice with me several things here in this passage. But the first thing that stood out to me, to live in peace among men, we must first be committed to serving the Lord. Notice the end of verse 11, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer a picture of someone that is committed to serving God. And that's where it all begins. If we're like on the fence, we're not sure if we're serving God. Well, we may be some, maybe not. 
um, non-resistance <laughs> will not work out. We will not live in peace. Those that are serving the Lord will have peace, first of all, in their hearts, and then they can show that peace to others. The second thing that stood out to me To live in peace among men, we must have a genuine heart. We must have a genuine heart of love for others. We need an outward focus. Notice the last part of verse 9. Or the first part of verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Notice verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another. With brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do you get the picture? A person with a genuine heart of love for others. I believe that's important if we're going to live in peace. If we're all focused on me and myself and I, it's not going to take a whole lot to offend us. But someone that's focused on doing good is not easily offended. The third thing I saw in this passage, to live in peace among men, we must be humble in spirit. I see that in verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. I believe that'll help. An humble spirit. You know, if we know it all, we got it all figured out, it needs to all go my way. We'll soon be in conflict, for sure, especially if you work with other people. The fourth thing I saw in this passage, to live in peace among men, I will believe that vengeance belongs to God. In the end, God will make all wrongs right. My calling as a Christian is to live peaceably. 17a. Repay no evil for evil. Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, verse 19, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When conflict arises, in life, it seems important at such times to have the last words. We want our side to be heard. I have found when such conflicts arise, it's best to say as little as possible. The less we say, the better off we will be. When we start to talk, we often end up saying too much. Yes, it may be true what we have to say, but often it would be so much better if we wouldn't say it. It's better to say nothing. It's better to text nothing 
than later regret what you have said or text. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And Jesus gave us an, a perfect example of how to deal with conflict. And none of us here will ever suffer like Jesus suffered. But he gave us an example, and we find that in 1 Peter 2, and you can turn there if you like. But we know how Christ suffered for us on the cross. We know how he suffered before the cross, the hours leading up to the cross. He was treated so unfairly. He was accused of so many things that were not true. But what did he do? Well, part of that was an example for us. It says here in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. We just read that. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. But here we have the example of Christ. He just simply committed himself. He committed himself to his heavenly Father who judges righteously. So folks, here is our perfect example. When conflict arises in life, being in church or in our homes, in our marriages, with our neighbors, or even with the ungodly in our work, here is our example, the example of Jesus Christ. You know, generally, the person in the wrong does most of the talking. <laughs> that's, that's how it is. I mean, it's even that way all the way down to our marriages. If, if, if we're in conflict with our wife or we're not agreeing, generally the one that's in the wrong can't quit talking. They got to keep talking. They got to, and generally it's me in, in our situation. But it's, you find that true in life. The one that's in the wrong is, he, he's the one that has to talk. But let him talk. Let her talk. That's what Jesus did. And you know, those hours leading up to Christ's death on the cross, he said very, very few words. And if he would have said something, it would have been used against him. And so Christ is our perfect example. Christ committed himself to him who judges righteously. I want to read one more passage that speaks to living peaceably, and then we will close. I know some of you have to write an essay on that part of, of living peaceably, and I would encourage you, um, I guess I'm not speaking out of turn, but I would encourage you students to get your thoughts for that essay between Romans 12 and 1 Peter chapter 3. That's where we're going to go next. Because the Bible has the answers for us when it comes to how to live peaceably. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 18, I want to read these verses and then we'll bring this to a close. <coughs> 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, 
all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Now, I hadn't thought of this before, but here we go again. Very similar to Romans chapter 12, we have this thought of um, a heart of compassion, a heart of love, being right here with teaching on how to live at peace among ourselves. So those two must be very much connected. Not rendering evil for evil or revealing for revealing, but on contrary blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life, that would be all of us, and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if ye become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as an evildoer, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. We'll call for a closing song. <clears throat>